This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. They'd all been killed in a car wreck. I thought, well, if they got killed in a car wreck, nothing I can do about it. But Lord have mercy, when they told me what had happened, I just thought I was going to die. It was a cold, snowy night, much like this one. Bryce Durham, his wife Virginia, and their son Bobby were inside, eating dinner in the den and watching television. It was nine o'clock. Within an hour, Bryce, Virginia, and Bobby Durham were dead. Dead. February 3rd, 1972. A normal day that turned tragic and has since become legend, hanging over the mountain town of Boone for 50 years. On that one cold night, Boone was changed forever. It was just a really laid-back place, a small area back at that time. Families were close-knit, Everybody kept the front doors open, and you wouldn't have to worry about anything. But that, you know, that changed after the murders that night. A blizzard had left much of the area covered in snow, though by the time the sun creeped out from behind the mountains the next morning, news of the brutal slaying of three members of the Durham family had already traveled quickly in the community. The Durham's home had been ransacked. A roasted chicken now sat cold on the kitchen table. Dinner plates with half-eaten meals rested in the den, never to be finished. And light from the silent TV cast an eerie glow on the walls. There was blood on the carpet in the living room. The wall phone's handset lay on the floor, beeping a steady, and ominous tone. 51-year-old Bryce, 44-year-old Virginia, and 18-year-old Bobby had been beaten, tied at the wrists, strangled with nylon rope, and drowned in the family's bathtub, which was overflowing when authorities arrived. Around Bobby's neck was still wrapped the rope which had been used to take his young life. With little to no information initially being provided by police, citizens were left to wonder, was this a random killing by a madman? Was there a serial killer on the loose? Was the Durham family involved in criminal activity unbeknownst 
to everyone. The alarming questions only led to even more terrifying thoughts of who could be next. Would they come from me or my family next time? Yet, as the years passed, that fear would fade, little by little, and the town of Boone moved on. Families came and went. Young girls grew into women, and fathers became grandfathers, as only time can allow. But for better or worse, the horrid murders of the Durham family seem to have been etched into the very fabric of Boone, North Carolina. Decades later, while sitting around a campfire or belly up to a local bar, you might still hear the story of that night being told by locals of a certain age. Theories on who did it, why, and how. Or maybe you'd hear that it would never be solved. But it was on another cold February day, 50 years after the murders, that shocked just about everyone. Not just in that humble little mountain town, but across the nation. A member of George's Dixie Mafia blew this unsolved mystery wide open. From Imperative Entertainment, this is Season 2 of In the Red Clay. Boone is nestled in the high country of western North Carolina, tucked away in the middle of the scenic Blue Ridge Mountains. It's a small town, by most standards, of around 20,000 people much different than it was in the 1970s. I mean, it's kept, uh, you know, some of its small-town charm, but, you know, for those of us who were here back then, you know, obviously we can tell a difference. You just knew more people. You know, the population was less, and and I would say there were more businesses that were kind of mom-and-pop businesses run by local people. But, you know, obviously we've grown, and I think back in 1972, the college population was something like seven to 8,000. Boone is beautiful, an outdoor lover's paradise. It's been named one of the 50 best adventure towns in the U.S. by National Geographic. You can hike the Cascades Trail or fish for trout and bass at nearby Wildcat Lake. There's mountain biking at Rocky Knob Park, and in the winter, you can hit the slopes at Beach Mountain. During Christmas, the entire town seems to emit a warm glow under a blanket of twinkling lights and holiday decorations. It's a quiet, friendly place, ideal for raising a family if you're into seeking that safe, small-town life. But it didn't always feel that way. A 50-year-old triple homicide case in Watauga County is now closed. 
Deputies say the four men the on your wife screen and teenage son found dead All in their found home. tied up and dumped in a bathtub. Four confident calling this cold case closed 50 years later. Crime scene pictures gave us a closer look at what happened. The grisliest unsolved murder case in the area's long history, the triple homicide of Bryce, Virginia, and Bobby Durham, had finally, after half a century, come to a close, thanks to a confession by one of the men claiming to be responsible. And that confession pointed a finger squarely at some very familiar names. Billy Wayne Davis has been in prison for 35 years, serving a life sentence say that for Davis murder. told them that the murder was part of a hit. He said that are now connected to their murders. The suspects had ties to a group called the Dixie Mafia. Dixie Mafia. The Dixie Mafia in Georgia. On February 8th of this year, nearly 50 years to the day of the murders, Watauga County Sheriff Len Hageman announced in a press conference that the case was now officially closed, thanks to Billy Wayne Davis's confession. Dixie Mafia cohorts Bobby Jean Gaddis, Charles David Reed, and Billy Sunday Burt were named as accomplices by Davis. He said the four had done a hired hit on the Durham family. The press release on Tuesday, February the 8th, accurately reflects that we know beyond any doubt who committed these murders. So is this case closed? Done. The case is, is closed in my mind. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. The initial break in the case would come from one of Billy Burt's children. Though this time, it wasn't Stoney. It was the youngest of the Burt children, Shane, who was in the process of writing his own book about his father's life and crimes, from his perspective. He said that in 2019, during his research, he sat with former GBI agent Bob Ingram, the same agent who worked the Fleming murder case in 1973 in Wrens, Georgia. And while discussing some of his father's crimes, relayed to Ingram that he remembered his father telling him of a time he had killed three people in North Carolina during a snowstorm and was nearly caught. And this prompted Ingram to reach out to the Watauga County Sheriff's Department, where Boone is located, and provide that information to the sheriff there, as he felt the murders had similarities to the Fleming case for which Burt was convicted. After Ingram and Hageman both visited Billy Wayne Davis in prison several times, he confessed, and the case was officially closed. I was shocked. Little did I know then, but the very first time I interviewed Stoney in 2019, I witnessed the Durham investigation unfolding right in front of me. I had no clue what was happening at the time. It all started with a phone call Stoney received out of the blue. Mr. Stoney Burt. This is Stoney. Stoney, 
My name is Carolyn, and I work with the Watauga County Sheriff's Office in Boone, North Carolina. Yes, ma'am. We are working on some old cases and are going to be in Georgia next week. And I was wondering if there was any way while we were down there you would be available to meet with us? Yes, ma'am. I'd be more than happy to. I don't mind meeting with law officers or anybody like that. Anything I can do to help, I will. I got a phone call from a lady, and she was calling on behalf of a, I think she said a, not a team, but what do you call a, a task force? Something to do with old cases. And she wanted to know, could she come to my distillery and bring, you know, her people? And would I be willing to cooperate in anything I may know about anything in the Carolinas? And I told her, sure, I would be more than happy to. My father did cover both Carolinas. Matter of fact, the only place he was ever indicted for whiskey was Carolina. Stoney agreed to meet with the investigators in Georgia at his rock-solid distillery, which was still under construction at the time. So they came the next week. It was a GBI agent. Her, Sean, if I'm not mistaken, the sheriff might have been there. I don't know. You know how I let my mouth overload my butt sometimes? In the conversation, I made the remark about how I respected all men. Anything above a damn GBI was no good. <laughs> I think I pissed him off. I didn't mean to. But they asked me questions like, did he ever mention uh, any murders in Carolinas? Do you ever remember your dad saying anything about any jobs in North Carolina? or? Ma'am, none is specific. But I do know that in North and South Carolina, him and Harold were... Very, very active. And when I arrived at Rock Solid that first day to interview Stoney, I was met by investigators from Georgia and North Carolina. Stoney regaled stories of his father, as he does, and the officers hurriedly scribbled down notes and names as he rattled them off. But their interests seemed to lie not just in the Dixie Mafia, but with Davis and with his father in particular. So we had gotten some information that your dad had told a story about being in North Carolina and almost getting stuck in the snow because it was really cold. I said, but no, no, I've never heard him uh, ever talk of a Pacific murder other than the few around here that I already knew about. And that was only towards the last few years of his life. So, no, ma'am, I don't take tape anyway. They left after two hours with nothing of any substance because they didn't know anything. And just like Stoney said, Without gaining or giving up much information, the investigators thanked him and left. They never once mentioned the town of Boone or the name Durham, and we didn't know at the time that his brother Shane had been in contact with Bob Ingram. So, we forgot about it until February of this year. Next thing I heard two years later was they solved the case by my youngest baby brother, saying that my father told him about a snowstorm he almost got caught in, and I couldn't believe it. Billy Wayne Davis had made a jailhouse confession, stating that he and the other members of the Dixie Mafia had committed the murders as part of a hit for hire. The decades-old mystery is finally over. It would provide much-needed closure for the few remaining members of the Durham family and an ending to the area's most notorious unsolved crime, leaving no doubt as to who committed the murders and why. 
or so it would seem. You know, people just didn't feel like that it was um, that it was accurate to say that the case was closed. You know, the way that it was sort of announced was that the the case was then closed. But I think that was um, a disappointment to most people from around here because it was like, well, that's only half the equation. If you say you've identified the killers, then there had to be something to prompt these guys from Georgia to come up here. So what's the other half of the story? Why did they come up here? Did somebody, you know, arrange it, facilitate it? Was it somebody's prompting that they came here? And so that was the part of the mystery that still is not solved. There's lots of theories around, but nobody really knows that answer for sure. Terry Harmon is a lifelong resident of Boone. A bit of a local historian, he's followed the Durham case for as long as he can remember. Having grown up here, you know, I was six years old when the Durham murders occurred, and our family lived about two miles from their house. It was a frightening time. You know, as a six-year-old, you don't understand all the ramifications of what's gone on. I just remember, you know, conversations within the family and and that there was um, an atmosphere of fear, not knowing who committed the murders or if you might be the next victim. Was there some somebody lurking in the in the bushes outside your house? Uh, you know, you just didn't hear of things like that happening in Boone. Terry isn't the only local who questions the closing of the Durham case. Others, like Doug Mast, feel the same. They don't feel enough information has been provided by the sheriff to confidently say that this is exactly what happened. Now we know for sure. No, to me, uh, it won't be closed till they find out who heard it done. It was like, for some, it's been going on for that many years. He didn't give out a whole lot of information. You know, Billy Wayne Davis said that they were up here that night. I heard nothing to convince me that they were up here. It seems like the only thing that he said was he was going on what Billy Wayne Davis was saying, that he was the driver that night, and what Billy Burt's son had told them. Terry and Doug, like most of the people I've spoken to, still have questions about this case. They feel it's premature to close the case based off of just one man saying, yes, I was there, but it was these other people who committed the murders. I was just the driver. And really, from what we already know about Billy Wayne Davis, can he really be trusted? In this season of In the Red Clay, we'll reconstruct the events that took place the night of the murders, examine the investigation that followed, and speak with those who have intimate knowledge of the case and try to find out why it took so long for this case to be solved, and exactly why this horrible crime was committed in the first place. And I want to know, was Billy Wayne Davis telling the truth? February 3rd, 1972 began like any other day for Bryce, Virginia, and Bobby Durham. They owned a Buick dealership in town. Bryce was the salesman. His wife, Virginia, handled all the financial paperwork. And Bobby, a sophomore at Appalachian State University, would help out as needed when not in class. 
As reports of bad weather in the area began to come in, the family went about their day as usual. As evening approached, the weather began to worsen. The temperature dropped, the wind picked up, and the snow began to fall. One of the interesting things about that evening was that Bryce was a Rotarian, a member of the Rotary Club. So the Rotary Club was having a, um, well, typically I think they met at the Holiday Inn and boom, but on this particular night, they were meeting at Appalachian Ski Mountain in Blowing Rock, which is, you know, the next town over, still within Watauga County. Skiing had become a big thing here, probably starting around 1962. There was a, um, an instructional school called French Swiss Ski College that was based at Appalachian Ski Mountain. The Green Berets had started giving sort of winter training to their soldiers. So at this particular Rotary meeting, the Green Berets were going to do a skiing demonstration for the Rotary Club members. As it turned out, the weather was so bad that they had to cancel the demonstration, but they still had their Rotary meeting, and uh, I think just a handful of, of the members were able to get there because of the weather. But Bryce did go. While he was at the Rotary meeting, Virginia and Bobby, as far as anyone knows, stayed at the dealership until he got back. When the Rotary Club's meeting was over, Bryce left and headed back to the dealership to pick up Bobby and Virginia. I think he arrived maybe somewhere around 8.30 back at the dealership in Boone. And then as far as anyone knows, the three of them rode together in the GMC. The weather had now turned to blizzard conditions with sub-freezing temperatures and 40 mile per hour winds causing near whiteouts. Bobby, who'd planned to attend a basketball game at the college that evening, opted not to due to the weather. They borrowed a green and white four-wheel drive GMC Jimmy off the lot to give them a better chance of making it home safely and up the steep driveway to their house, which tended to turn to a sheet of ice in weather like this. Much of what happens next is unknown. Uh, I think most people agree that the Durhams reached home around nine. From the crime scene, investigators were able to piece together some of the events that likely took place between the family's arrival at home and their deaths between approximately 9 and 10.30 p.m. At the crime scene, Bobby's and Virginia's shoes were found by the front door, you know, neatly. And they were still wet. Bryce's coat and uh, overboots and his hat were upstairs in the bedroom. There was a, a chicken on the table in the kitchen, sweet potatoes on the stove. In the den where they normally sat and watched television, there were three glasses of soft drink. There were plates with food, some of it partially eaten. You know, it gave the appearance that they had come home and had had time to take off their coats and shoes and prepare a snack and sit down in the den and, and eat it. It's still unclear as to how the events unfolded from here, or how or when the killers even entered the house. But police believed that there was more than one intruder. No signs of forced entry. 
nobody really knows exactly how it went down because, you know, were they already in the house? Were they hiding in the basement? Were they hiding in the garage? Or did the killers actually appear, you know, after the family was home? So that's always been sort of a question that nobody can completely answer. Investigators would find something that drew their attention to the garage as a possible point of entry. So they had two garage doors, and one of the garage doors reportedly was broken, and it was, you know, it was already up several inches. It wouldn't close all the way. I think there was a broken spring. And if you go into that garage door within the garage, then there's a door that leads directly into the den where they were sitting. You know, could they have entered through that partially open garage door and then just walked straight into the den? The Durhams were found on their knees, leaning on one another, tied at the wrists, and bent over the side of the bathtub. Blood-red water was overflowing onto the floor, and all three people had ligature marks around their wrists and throats. A four-foot nylon rope was still wrapped around Bobby's neck. Virginia had been repeatedly struck in the face, and an autopsy would show her cause of death as strangulation. Bryce and Bobby were both strangled as well, their cause of death, drowning. And the autopsy reports say that there were no signs on their bodies of struggle in terms of, you know, fighting back. Of course, the house was completely ransacked, drawers pulled out, closets, pictures off the wall, things tossed around. The state of disarray the house was left in suggested that robbery was the motive. It appeared that the intruders were searching for something. Bryce and Bobby's wallets were emptied and left lying at their feet on the bathroom floor, and a bank deposit envelope from the Durham's Buick dealership containing cash was left lying in plain sight. The amount of money in that envelope has never been verified. Some reports say it contained several hundred dollars. Some say upwards of $10,000, which immediately gave investigators the idea that maybe this wasn't just your run-of-the-mill robbery after all. Nobody has ever documented, to my knowledge, exactly how much money was in it. Some reports say it was a large sum. Some say it was a small sum. So I don't know what to believe other than there was just money in the bag. And then some have theorized, you know, just because they didn't take the bank deposit bag doesn't mean they weren't there to rob them. Maybe they didn't see the bag. Maybe they didn't care about that. Maybe they were after something else. At some point between approximately 10 and 10.30 p.m., the killers left in the green and white GMC Jimmy that Bryce had just a short time ago driven the family home in from his dealership. And I wonder, on that last ride home the family would ever take together, what did they talk about? Were they making plans for the future? Were Bryce and Virginia proudly asking how college life was treating their young son? Did they discuss the beauty of the falling snow? For whatever reason, it's this image I have that brings the gravity of this situation into focus for me. Because just a short time before this, there was a family here 
in these inconspicuous car seats. But all of that was now wiped away as the killers sat in those very same seats, having entirely different conversations of their own. And they would leave that vehicle on the side of the road without a care, much like they left the lifeless bodies of the Durham family behind moments before. It was about two miles away from the house, kind of in a ditch. What I've read is that there weren't any indication that the car had slidden, you know, on the roadway, but that it was just normal tracks that had driven it to that point. So that made people think, well, if they just drove it in there with the intention of leaving it. They did find additional, you know, different cars, tracks that had pulled up behind the Jimmy. So obviously they had to have a way to get away. So the thought was that the getaway car pulled up behind the Jimmy. They got out of the Jimmy, got in the getaway car. There was some silverware found in the Jimmy in a pillowcase. But, you know, did they take part of it with them? Was that everything they took and they didn't take any of it out of the car? I don't know. Other than cleaning out Bryce and Bobby's wallets, the criminals apparently left the envelope full of cash at the house, opting instead for a few pieces of silverware, which were left in the truck. Are these the telltale signs of a professional hit? I mean, now, granted, their jewelry wasn't taken. You know, Bobby has his class ring on. Bryce and Virginia have their wedding rings. I think one or more of them have a wristwatch. So, you know, none of that was taken. You know, why did they take silver trays? The GMC was found still running on the side of nearby Poplar Grove Road. There was no trace of the occupants. Whoever was driving it had disappeared into the frigid black night. Back at the crime scene, onlookers from the neighborhood gathered in the driveway to find out what had happened. Many of them, out of morbid curiosity or disbelief, took turns going into the house to see the aftermath for themselves. They touched things, moved furniture out of the way, tracked snow and mud into the house, thoroughly contaminating the crime scene before police even arrived. Police were notified a murder had been committed, though, and it all started with a phone call from Virginia Durham to her daughter Jenny and her son-in-law Troy while the killers were still in the house. There were probably lots of things that led up to that night, but and, and things that we probably will never fully understand or know what happened. But as far as the murders themselves, yeah, that was kind of the first, um, the first thing that got the ball rolling that night that would have exposed anybody to what had happened. The Durham's only daughter, 19-year-old Ginny Sue, and her husband Troy Hall lived in the Greenway Trailer Park, just four and a half miles away from her parents. Troy was a student at Appalachian State at the time. Troy had been supposedly out studying at the ASU library for about a five-hour period, and he got home around 10 o'clock. He and Jenny were going to watch the Winter Olympics. It was actually a recap of the opening ceremonies, but that was being broadcast at that time. 
And uh, but then their TV went on the fritz, and so they put on music. The times reported are different, but um, anywhere from 10:15 to 10:30, Troy said he got a phone call, and he didn't originally realize that it was Virginia calling. It was kind of like a hushed, frantic voice saying that three men were in the house beating Bobby and Bryce in a back room. And then the phone went dead. Troy then told Jenny about the call, and he initially wondered if it could have been a prank of some kind. And Jenny said, well, my mother wouldn't have, you know, she wouldn't kid about something like that. And so we need to go and uh, see what's going on. So they went outside. Troy's car wouldn't start. So they go a couple of trailers down to their neighbors, Cecil Small, who was kind of like a small-time private detective, and also I think he helped manage the trailer park. He took them in his car to the Durham house. Troy advised his neighbor, Cecil Small, to bring his gun as the two men and Jenny Durham set out for her parents' house. They made it halfway up the Durham steep icy driveway before getting stuck, having to walk the rest of the way. Cecil Small recounts what happened next on that unforgettable night. When he got to the den door, he put his hand on it and he stepped back. And when he did, I come out with my gun. I said, what is it? Seeing the television upon him, there was no sound, but a picture was moving. And then I heard a noise. I started to the north. And I got in front of the bathroom door, and there they lay. The boy was lying first on his knees with his head down in the tub. And the, the man next, and the lady was laying last. Troy was there hollering, Is anybody home? Is anybody home? And I said, here they are, Troy, come in. He threw up his hand, he said, oh my God. The ambulance is on its way, and they just told it to settle down there. Wait a minute, I think they're out here. Listen, I won't hang up. Are they out there? Uh, the ambulance will be there shortly. Yeah. Okay, now, it's, uh, you said it was a robbery. I don't know, it's just the house is all messed up. Everything was thrown everywhere. I don't know what happened. Uh, all of them hurt. I know for a fact that my father had nothing to do with that. It ain't happened like that. Bill Wayne Davis is lying, but I got the damn proof of what I'm talking about. In the Red Clay is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and recorded the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Sound design by Shane Freeman. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Season two of In the Red Clay, Durham, is a six-episode series with new episodes available every Monday. 
To keep up with this and my other podcasts, follow me on social media at Sean Kuyper. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you like the series, tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.